Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's conversation takes us inside Snapchat as we talk about the platform's relationship with sport, with Head of Partnerships and Mal Malhotra. Snapchat burst onto the scene in 2011 as the anti-Facebook, a photo and messaging app aimed directly at a much younger target audience and with an entirely new visual grammar. It now claims a reach of 90% of 13 to 24-year-olds in America. This stat has led many teams, leagues and athletes to attempt to build an audience on the platform with mixed results. So we ask what works and what doesn't and delve into what Snapchat knows about this very valuable and sought after audience when it comes to consuming sports related content and how this is likely to evolve. As ever, if you want to get in touch with Unofficial Partner, reach us via the website or sign up for our weekly newsletter. Here is Anmol Melhotra. What's a day like for you? What What's the normal sort of uh, head of partnerships at Snap? What does What does that mean from a day to day basis? Yeah, so I think right now it's obviously more unique given everything going on um, at this moment with many sports having come back and a couple of big ones slated to come back very soon. Um, the day to day now is really looking at how we can tell the best stories across our platform and how we can work with our partners um, to really innovate with uh, this new environment. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're now we're, we're entering a phase where there's not going to be fans in stadiums for probably a pretty decent amount of time. Um, so we're trying to help our partners provide that fan experience um, through our very innovative platform in a unique way. Uh, you know, one example we had of this is, when the NBA season came back uh, at the end of July, we did a really cool and unique AR activation with the league where you could use your Snapchat camera, um, point it to the ground in your living room and recreate the NBA court in Orlando. Um, and we love that, that using our technology, the NBA was obviously very happy with the fact that they could bring that quote unquote bubble experience um, of the actual court into a Snapchatter's living room through our tech. So just trying to think through very um, interesting opportunities like that to, to take into account what's going on in today's world. And presumably, I'm expecting you to say that numbers have, have gone up significantly during the COVID sort of period in terms of users being on their, on their phones. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if, I'm sure everyone who, who operates a, a mobile application is probably in the same boat with people just at home um, and, and on their phones and, and watching TV more. I think we've benefited like everyone else. I think what's unique about Snap is one of the things that we were reminded of over the past four or five months was really the core value of why we started the, the application. Um, talking to your best friends and family via pictures and video. Uh, at our heart, we are a mobile communication platform. And in a world today where you might not be able to see your loved ones physically for a period of time, you can still connect with them emotionally. And I think our, our platform has allowed them to do that in a very significant way. Okay. Let's, let's, so uh, before jumping ahead, cause there's some, there's some questions that jump out of that, but the job, your job title um, is head of sports partnerships um, at snap. So my assumption or before we spoke the other day, my assumption was that actually you are a, that's a brand partnership um, job. It isn't. Is that right? Are you looking? Are we? How are you defining partners in your job? 
Yeah, so the partners that I work with are leagues, broadcasters, rights holders, teams, and athletes. Um, so my job is to bring the best sports storytellers um, across the globe and allow them an avenue to, to tell those stories on Snap. Uh, so yeah, it's a little bit different than I think what we talked about last week around brands. We have a, obviously a pretty big sales team that talks to every brand um, you could imagine, every vertical, trying to get them to obviously market on Snap for very similar reasons, right? I think the goal for, for my role and my team is to um, provide a new audience, a younger audience, a potentially more engaged audience to our traditional sports partners um, in a place where they're probably not getting that type of audience anywhere else, right? You know, 90% of our platform is under the age of, of 25. Um, we're seeing, you know, a, a very, uh, I think, new or we call next generation of fans being developed on Snap. And I think the value provides someone like the NFL or the NBA or Sky, um, or Barcelona or anyone in between is really uh, giving them an avenue towards that next generation of folks that are going to be following their brands hopefully for a long period of time. So if I am, um, okay, I'm a Spurs fan, Tottenham Hotspur fan. So I say, right, I don't want, or I'm, I'm okay with Richard Gillis. He's, he's not your classic Snapchat user, you know, let's put it that way. And, and I'm, I am too old for them. They need to reach um, 15-year-old kids in London or and elsewhere. They come to you. What's the sort of defining conversation that they want from you? And age, presumably, is that I'm, I'm assuming that a, the age of the audience of Snap and they want to reach those people. Is there anything else beyond that that they're looking for? Yeah, so I think you know the age conversation is is always a primary one, um, and I think you know as I mentioned with our audience earlier, we do have a very coveted kind of part of the demographic, um, which I think is very appealing to all sorts of potential partners. Can you just unpick that for a minute, just because I'm making assumption again? I've you know, the, and everyone will that the, the audience is young, but what's the marketplace for their attention of a 15 year old or a 13 year old? Yeah, so uh, you know, ninety percent of our platform, as I mentioned, is is thirteen to twenty four. Um, one of the things that we announced uh, a couple quarters ago is that we reached seventy five percent of thirteen to thirty four year olds. Um, we reached ninety percent of thirteen to twenty four year olds. So uh, the vast majority of our audience are are young people, Gen Z and millennials. So you, re- uh, you, know, you reach ninety percent of thirteen to twenty four year olds. Correct. What does that mean? What in terms of reach? How are you defining reach there? Just for just yeah, for- so, so we reach 90 percent of thirteen twenty four year olds in the U.S., meaning that ninety um, percent of thirteen twenty four year old smartphone users are are using our platform, which is a pretty significant number. That's a huge number. So that's in the U.S. Yeah. and beyond the U.S. Yeah, so beyond the U.S., the the overall demographic numbers are very similar um, in terms of reach. Those apply to the UK, Canada, Australia, and a lot of other key markets in a very similar way. Um, as we sort of touched upon briefly last week, what a huge kind of component of my job today and the platform is obviously expanding outside of our, our core key markets. Um, outside of the US right now, those five or six that are really big for us are Canada, UK, France, Germany, 
Um, the Middle East is really big for us. Australia, India is probably our fastest growing market. And uh, we're just seeing more and more usage of our platform in these places. And that's where, you know, from where I sit and where, uh, where my kind of focus is from a sports standpoint is where we're looking to do deals. Um, so that's a pro- you prioritize those. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. The, the, um, you prioritize yeah. those markets because they are, uh, is it popular? They've shown a sort of popularity uh, towards the platform or is it that that's where the money is or, or that's where the sports economy is? What, what's determined your choice of those marketplaces? The first important thing for us is users. So DAUs, daily active users. So that's where we're seeing more people using the application. Then yes, the second component, as you alluded to, is um, potential advertising market, right? Because obviously we want to we build a business in some of these places. So we want to make sure that that's, that's feasible. Um, but the first thing that we're always looking at is users and where are people using the app um, more than others, and where can we kind of build around that usage? And how does that, you know, the the reach number? How does that compare to you know the obvious competitors of of Instagram Stories or or TikTok or or, or Twitter or whatever? I mean, I'm assuming that's a say that's a that's an eye opening number in terms of the reach. But I'm just trying to see is that just everyone with a phone naturally has a Snapchat, or is there is it significantly higher than the the competition? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So it's actually one thing that we did announce in our last earnings call. Um, so that that US number that I mentioned that we're reaching 90% of all 13 to 24 year olds and 75% of all 13 to 34 year olds, um, based on publicly available data, that's more people in the US than Twitter and TikTok combined. Uh, so I think one of the, the uh, misconceptions, or not necessarily misconceptions, or one of the pieces that you know, people don't realize is in our core demographic, we are very, very big. Um, and that's kind of what we're focused on, right? So, so in that core demographic, we, we compare very well to, to some of the peers that you mentioned. Okay. So you're in a good spot to answer some of the questions that I mean, I, I talk a lot to people on the rights holder side. So people who are running, you know, I, I had a, we do a, a, a a series where we talk to people, you know, at UEFA, or we talk to people at agency side, or we, um, you know, the the, the clubs um, or the big rights holders, and they all obviously want to, you know, the the conversation about age and relevance of um, their particular sport or their league or their team to that audience that you're dominating. So they must come to you and say, okay, help, and. I want to know just a bit about what do we know about those people at that age in their relationship with with sport? And because one of the sort of um, ideas is that they are more starred, sort of their allegiance is more to the individual players than it is to teams or leagues. I'm just wondering if that's true or whether or not, and, and what the re- type of relationship they have with, for example, Liverpool or the you know the sort of Dallas Cowboys or whatever it is that whatever the PSG whatever the the the, the team uh, team level is what their relationship with with that is and whether it's a true fan relationship in the sense that I would understand it or it's something else. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and actually, um, I'll take a step back from it to talk about some of our our evolution of thinking about what our users care about because I think it's an important uh, kind of segue into into what you're asking around. 
I, I think early on when we were doing this in, you know, 2014, 2015, um, our goal was really just getting the biggest events uh, and sporting events on the platform, right? So think Super Bowl, think the Masters, think the Champions League, the World Cup, the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, our goal, at, at least early on, was really how do we make sure we get coverage of those events on Snap? Um, and, you know, from, from our standpoint, we didn't really know uh, what would be working from a content piece. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the core you know, value of our application and why we started was purely messaging. So when we added content, it was really a lot of testing and learning and seeing what stuck with our users. And from a sports standpoint, um, the easiest thing for us to do, and given we were a little bit smaller in the space and no one knew who we were and that we were really doing content, was trying to target um, from the top down the biggest sporting events in the world. And uh, what we saw, you know, and this is probably four or five years ago, the vast majority of our sports coverage evolved into just being about matchups, right? Um, Spurs versus uh, Man City, right? Or Arsenal, right? Uh, Dallas versus Green Bay, the Knicks versus the Lakers. Um, and this worked really well. But what we found is that, you know, unless you were a fan of those two teams, those, those stories were not really that attractive to you. Um, and, you know, we saw outsized viewership in the markets and areas where, there were hardcore fans of those respective teams. And then unless it was a really, really compelling game, um, we were seeing kind of a drop off. And I think what we really changed over the past, you know, 12, 18, 24 months um, was the way that we approached our sports offerings and really thinking about, you know, everything else outside of the game. I think what we realized is that there are so many other mediums that cover the actual game itself. Um, and they have goals and touchdowns and dunks, but what we could provide was everything beyond that, right? The tailgates, the fans, the locker room, the pubs. Um, we love the the first row snap from a stadium. We also equally love the last row snap. We want to give our users a 360 experience and what it feels like to actually be at an event. Um, and we really believe it's the next, be- next best way to experience a sporting event without actually being there. So. Um, you know, long and short of it is that we became better storytellers. And as opposed to just covering covering the stuff that everyone else is covering, we actually decided to kind of tell a narrative and kind of bring the users into this experience in a very fun, different, unique way that was short, three to five minutes, highly engaging, highly entertaining. And I think that the most important thing, relatable to a wide subset of fans or potential fans. Um, you know, one thing that we discussed last week is that not everyone knows who Lionel Messi is or Ronaldo or that Bayern and PSG are playing the Champions League final on Sunday or LeBron or Tom Brady. Um, and I think early on, we were too overweight on uh, catering to hardcore sports fans. And now we've added the ability to cater to the casual fan. And I think that's kind of our, you know, to your question earlier, what can we bring to new partners? Um, it's really piquing the curiosity for someone who isn't a hardcore fan and developing that potential pageantry and fandom that we all love and know um, and allowing that to happen across our platform. So I think that's kind of the the goal for us is, is to not only cater to hardcore sports fans, but also surface content and interesting creative tools that uh, attract the casual fan. So the assumption is that the kids of 13 can be hardcore sports fans and they can be hardcore 
sort of specific fans to specific teams at that point, which I get. I, I think, you know, I think I can, I can understand that. I'm just wondering, because you've put a particular lens on it, which is a, a lens that um, sports rights holders have put on it for the last decade, which is the big eventer lens, isn't it? It's saying, I, I, I don't just want to reach the avids. I want to reach that outer ring of people. And they're the people that we can talk to and broaden the audience. And you've taken that and applied that to with an age specific agenda. I'm just wondering if, if teams, because what you're saying is that people will come, there'll always be team fans, but you want to also get football fans or sports fans linked in. Um, my question is about the star and the player and the yep. role that those people play, because again, the the running assumption is that they are what draws young fans in, particularly the further away from the the sort of ground you get. So once you go outside of um, London, UK, Spurs fans start to break up and they are more attracted to um, Harry Kane or to whoever else, you know, they, they you know, it might be a national uh, allegiance that they get. Is that something that you see? Is that something, you know, because you're yeah. then getting into the, the player as influencer sort of. Um, 100%, definitely. So so to, to tell on, on the end of um, what I was saying earlier, I think what we've evolved towards is realizing that um, things outside the court or the pitch or the field are actually really compelling to young people. So we completely agree with that statement. Um, you know, we're seeing young people have more affinity towards individuals. And you think about how the sports ecosystem has changed over the past number of years, you know, use myself as an example, right? I'm, I'm grew up outside New York city. I'm a hardcore New York sports fan. Um, I will root for the Yankees and the giants and the Knicks, no matter how good or how bad they are. That's, that's my affinity. Um, I think you're seeing young people now follow players, as you mentioned, right? So especially when you look at a league like the NBA with superstars changing teams, it seems like every year now or every other year. Um, and then even overseas with European soccer, right? You're seeing a lot more changes happening. And I think that goes into um, just the way that players uh, contracts work today for agency and, and the way the, the empowerment they have to kind of move around and change teams. You're seeing young people do the same thing, meaning that they're going to follow a Neymar they're going to follow a LeBron from the Cavs to the Heat to back to the Cavs to the Lakers. They're going to follow a Kyrie um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's where their fandom lies. And it is a really important thing for us as well because um, we can't just expect uh, that engagement to come from someone following our, uh, our team focus or our league focus, but also has to be around the players. So one of the things we've done a lot more over the past year or so is really increase our athlete outreach um, and just our, our broader kind of talent outreach across snap. Cause you made a really good point earlier. This is what's driving young people, right? When they see, you know, a, a tier one athlete use one of our funny lenses or filters that drives them to come to snap and use that same lens or filter. So we totally understand and get how powerful that can be. Um, and then on, on kind of the, to piggyback what I was saying earlier, you know, the storylines of a player's fashion choice or what he does at home with his family. Um, and a lot of this, quite frankly, we've actually seen during the during COVID where we're doing stories of players working out from home. And I think that's done extremely well because 
again, it goes back to resonating with individuals, right? We're all stuck at home. We're all trying to find ways to, to stay in shape. And when you see athletes in their backyards doing the same thing, um, it provides an extra layer, uh, a potential way to connect with them on a different level that's outside the actual game itself. So I think that last point is something that that we have really tried to lean in and lean in on, um, which is how do we tell those stories, those really compelling stories around these athletes that aren't just about what they do, you know, on the field or in prime time. What's their family life? How do they work with their kids? Um, how do they keep in shape? Shape? What other hobbies do they have? And I think our platform is unique in the sense that um, we can tell those stories in a really powerful and interesting way. You know, one of the things that athletes always tell us is they love Snap, right? You know, we don't have a feedback loop. There are no likes. There's no comments. Nothing is permanent. (laughs) Unlike other platforms um, where they might post something and then the next day one person might disagree with that and they might get thousands of comments. around hate and bullying or just people disliking what they said. And by definition, it kind of limits their ability to be authentic, right? Where on Snap, they can be themselves. You know, we have a funny thing we show athletes where we show posts of some of our our big Snapchatters on Snap versus some of these other platforms. And you can see just how real and how genuine their posts on Snap are because it goes away. Right. It's very similar to having a normal conversation with somebody. Nobody's nobody's, you know, necessarily there with the camera. Um, So I think they feel a little bit more comfortable on on Snap. And because of that, they can, again, back to the audience piece, um, reach a a, a subset of their fans that they can showcase themselves in a very unique way. So it's it's not a dialogue. It's a monologue there. They've got total control over the message and they're sending that out and and people would rather listen to it or not, but there isn't any feed, as you say, there's no feedback loop to, I can see the, you know, it, it, the upside from a, from a star's perspective is, is you don't get the haters and the, you know, the terrible stuff that they get on Twitter. Um, It's also, there's a, there's a question there I've got, I guess, is the, which goes back to what you said earlier about the, you know, the core of the thing was talking to your friends and family using pics and video. Um, and where, and how content fits into that because it can I can imagine being a bit irritated if suddenly I'm in the middle of a conversation it's like someone barging in now however famous that person is they are barging into a conversation with my mates and that's that feels sort of a bit odd yeah so you know on the on the content side so we basically have three three main portions of our app right we open to the camera which is really important to us because immediately you're incentivized to create a funny picture and video and send it to your friends. And again, that's, that's the core kind of um, reason our app started visual communication, visual ephemeral communication. And that's another point uh, that I alluded to earlier. It goes away, right? Um, The left side of our application is pure messaging. Um, And that's where, again, you'll be talking to your friends and you can, you can develop group chats um, and you have your kind of list of all the people that you message. The right side of our application is content. So they do sit separately. So there would never be a scenario where uh, you know, you're know you interrupted while sending a message to your friend. That's completely between you and your friend. Um, and that's a, you know, a sep- that's a, a, its own portion of the app, the left side of the application. Uh, I think what you're alluding to is that if you're watching your friend's story, so right, obviously we have the story feature where I can post... Um, you know, my day, right? I, mm-hmm. I woke up and went for a run and now I'm talking to you. I'll make breakfast after this, et cetera. And I can post five, 10 snaps to my story, to my public story, which all of my friends can see. 
Um, and I think what you're alluding to is that, well, you can also see, um, you know, Luka Doncic's story next to that, uh, which, is, which is not an unfair point. The, the difference that we have is that we have a friend kind of horizontal scroll, which is all of your friends. And then below that, we have, quote unquote, premium content, right, which would be professional creators. It would be the NFL story. It'd be the NBA story from last night. It'd be the Champions League story on Sunday um, and all those professional content creators. And a really important thing for us is, you know, what you see, Richard, what you see on your Snapchat discovery page, which is our content page. And what I see is different. It's not the same. We don't, we don't just plug and play and put one person in slot one, another person in slot two. It's based on how you engage with the platform. It's based upon your defined interests that you can put in, that you're a sports fan, that you're a music fan. Um, and it's based on what you watch, right? So if you're a big football fan and you watch about a bunch of football content, your feed will look a lot more of our football publishers, right? If I'm a big music enthusiast and I follow some of our music artists and uh, follow iHeart as one of our publishers, my feed will be uh, composed of that. So uh, it's really important for us, to your point, to make sure that you know the, the feed that you're seeing is inclusive of all of your best friends, which is something that you choose. And again, that's really, really important for us, right? No one else who isn't your friend can see your story. So if I post my story, you and I currently are not friends on Snap. You cannot see that story unless uh, we friend each other. So you're keeping that close knit of circle of your friends as kind of the place that you're broadcasting towards. And then anything below that is kind of separated into premium content. Okay. So what about then the publishers? So in terms of... of you know, the, it could be. I mean, you've got ESPN on there as a as a good example of a of a you know obviously a huge um, publishing empire, and yeah. they again for the same reasons I'm assuming are, are using the platform um, to reach that particular audience. What are the what do they need to bear in mind? What does a publisher need to to think about when it approaches this? Because the first iteration of this would be you know just trying to squeeze. Sports Center into um, the phone, a fo- you know, a Snapchat-shaped thing. But I'm assuming that that's a bad strategy. But what do they do? What What's a good strategy for a publisher? Yeah, great question. So um, it was probably one of our, I don't want to say challenging, but one of our most, uh, our biggest areas of focus in early days, because exactly what you're saying it's not just taking something you've already created and then throwing out Snap, right? Um, you have to understand as a publisher that you're talking to a whole different audience who's mobile first, um, you know, vertical first, and attention spans are a lot smaller. Uh, so you can't just cut down a, a 10, 20 minute, 30 minute segment and expect it's going to work perfectly on Snap. So with ESPN, uh, which is a great example of publishers worked with us for a number of years. They're one of our first partners in the content space. The goal that we really um, emphasize with them early on is developing their voice on Snap that was obviously taking into account all of the success they've had on Linear and a lot of the IP that they use. And I'll, I'll talk about an example except with SportsCenter. Um a lot of the, you know, the the sports knowledge and the way that they kind of curate highlights and all those really, really strong pieces, but sort of evolve that or add to that um, or enhance that uh, for our platform in a unique way. So the goal really being um, 
how do you develop short form content that resonates with this younger generation in a way that allows them to spend time with it and come back multiple times per day. So that those are our, really our two biggest KPIs that we push upon our partners. We want them to finish the stories that you're putting on. We want them to watch them from start to finish. And we want them to make sure that they, that they trust you as an editorial voice so much so they'll come back and watch your additional pieces of content um, that week and that month, right? Uh, those are the two things that we look at the most as success for a content publisher. And that's how we kind of evaluate what makes sense for Snap. So Sports Center on Snap is, is one of our favorite examples to talk about this. Um, you know, anyone in the US and beyond knows that Sports Center is such an important brand for sports fans and has been around for a long time um, on TV. And, you know, a number of years back, um, to give them a lot of credit, we kind of came to them and said, hey, like, we want to rethink how we can use Sports Center on Snap. And um, we kind of came up with this idea of cutting down the Sports Center show to a three to five minute daily segment. Um, and instead of hosts wearing suits and ties, which they do on TV, it was younger hosts wearing jeans and a t shirt. And instead of being entirely around highlights, you know, it was added around the cultural, um, you know, funny meme aspect of the younger generation being added to this. So, you know, one of this is one of our most proud partnerships because you now have millions of young people who uh, have a strong affinity to the Sports Center brand, and they have no idea that it even exists on TV. Their entire fandom or affinity has been driven by them watching the Snapchat Sports Center shows, um, which is a really, really powerful thing for ESPN to have, right? To diversify away, away from some of the stuff they, do, they did on TV, but also use that established IP in a very unique way. So they are a great example of someone who uh, sort of embraced our platform and invested in it by testing and learning and finding kind of the right um, type of show. You know, theirs is host-driven or a couple of theirs are host-driven, but to your, to your question, um, really evolving in a way and reimagining in a way uh, traditional IP but now made for mobile and made for a generation that's much younger. What's the the rights situation around Snapchat? Is it in in terms of do you show clips of highlights and do you pay for those or are you being paid to run those? Yeah, great question. So when we do a deal, so uh, as part of our function, when we do a deal with ESPN, for example, or the NFL or the NBA um, or the UA for FIFA or Sky, you know, we're, we're defining the content that we want to incorporate as part of our partnership. So um, I'll use the NFL example we talked about earlier, you know, in early days in 2015, that started as a once per week content partnership. So every Sunday we'd cover one game. And uh, early on, uh, we have multiple different content formats, but the, the first content format we kind of pioneered is, was called a live story. We're not calling it our story which is a crowdsourced UGC format, meaning that fans in the stadium would submit to Snapchat. We'd get thousands of submissions. Um, we would pick the best 30 or 40 and develop this really fun crowdsourced UGC-based story that gave multi-perspectives around an event, which, is, as you can imagine, is really, really strong and unique. Um, as part of that, you know, the NFL gave us their IP to use, right? So the story would lead with using, you know, team A versus team B's 
uh, logos and marks, which we got, we got rights to do through our deal. Um, the NFL would help us, right? They have social media folks at every game during normal times, and they would submit snaps from the locker room, from the field that we wouldn't get from, from fans per se. And then lastly, you know, one of those pieces was incorporating broadcast footage. They would send us highlights. So as part of that deal, um, we negotiated to incorporate highlights as part of that content format. And as we've evolved over the years, you know, we now have a show uh, with the NFL on Sundays that is entirely composed of them curating and, and updating highlights on Snap in a very, you know, Snapchatty way that has fun graphics and overlays, incorporates with lenses and filters, um, but is primarily highlight based. So our partnership agreement with the NFL allows us to do that. Um, through what we negotiated. And in some cases, you know, it's very highlight based, you know, I think, you know, for some of these major sports, it makes a lot of sense. In some cases, it's very much UGC based. We'll say, Hey, we actually don't need necessarily need highlights for this particular event. We can get a bunch of really fun content through crowdsource snaps um, happening there. So it really just depends on how we view it from an editorial standpoint, but our partnership deals uh, that we negotiate are uh, allow us to utilize that content. And it struck me the other day, I was reading a, a report, um, it's actually a Two Circles report, and they were talking about the, uh, about 80, I can't remember the exact number, 80% of the rights market is around live, you know, for live rights, talk about broadcast market here. And then, but about 50 odd percent of people watch live. And, and that suggests that obviously a lot of people are watching highlights. And highlights are have become a sort of, They've been degraded almost in the scheme of things, but now they've moved online. The classic highlight show has declined in terms of its its audience, in terms of on television. But it's a vibrant market online. I mean, on on Twitter and across all the social platforms, you know, goals, putts, tackles, whatever the the sport is, there is a real market for that. I'm wondering what how do you think that's going to evolve in terms of that clip economy? Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, a lot of people have always as used this analogy, I'm sure you've heard, is this like snackable versus this meal content, right? So on digital, you can get the snacks of these five, 10 second, 15 second clips. And then in theory, the the goal for the league is that um, you get your appetizer and, you, and then you come to the actual linear broadcast for watching the whole thing or getting your full meal. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's a very interesting point that you bring up with this younger generation pretty much growing up on mobile and uh, having the ability, like instead of having a remote control and sitting on their couch to change the channel, their remote control is their phone and their channels are their different apps where they can kind of jump around towards. So I think uh, what we're going to see is, again, this idea of casual versus hardcore fans versus fans who just care about individuals um, evolving. And I think it behooves the league's to continue to diversify their legacy TV traditional business, which has driven them very positively for a long period of time, um, to now try and make sure that they have presences across all these platforms, right? You know, I think it's I think it makes sense to be um, across everyone we've discussed for all the different reasons of you know our benefit for being that younger slice, other other platforms being a little bit older and have other capabilities that are very strong, and making sure that you're again trying to develop that fandom at a very young age um, and drive that over a period of time, right? You're much more valuable as you grow and you 
potentially go to games, buy merchandise, um, and become, you know, a, a bigger fan around around certain events or teams or players. And that all starts, you know, 13 to 17, 13 to 24. Uh, so the idea of this highlight piece, uh, I think it's it's smart for broadcasters and leagues to find ways to get their um, their brand and their product in front of young people. Uh, it's also just smart to think of through it as part of their broader ecosystem, right? I don't think it makes sense for somebody to go entirely in, in, into into one digital platform or entirely on linear. I think a combination and a diversification across them um, is the best investment over a period of time to make sure that you're hitting several of your cohorts. And and how big is sport on Snapchat? You know, what what proportion of the the content or the the conversation is it possible to to know that in terms of that is made up of sport versus other genres? Yeah, no, it, it's it's real. It's it's relatively big. I think what we pride ourselves around on Snap. Um, obviously, I'm very biased with my role in the sports <laughs> partnerships world, but you know what we pride ourselves is that we're providing our users multiple avenues um, to engage on the platform, right? So, you know, on Super Bowl Sunday, you can watch our amazing NFL content and we'll have a ton of stories and shows and interesting creative tools um, that you can utilize. Or you can watch a cooking show on Food Network or Tastemade, right? And that's your choice as a user. I want to be very, very clear and open about that. Um, if you're, if that's something you not want to watch on the Super Bowl Sunday, as much as that would disappoint me, given all the deals that we did, um, as a user, it's your choice to find what's best for you on Snap. So, I think sports fits in a very positive way, um, providing you know yet another uh, avenue for engagement and time being spent across our platform. But it's um, a component of a our larger strategy to provide compelling, made for mobile fun, engaging, short form, exciting content to our users that includes many other things, right? Music, entertainment, fashion, um, scripted shows, unscripted shows. And then the piece we haven't talked about yet, which is our camera marketing tools, which is a huge, huge um, component of engagement on Snap of people kind of playing around with those very fun and innovative lenses and filters. So in terms of the proportion of of the content on Snap that is sport related, what would it be what ten percent, fifty percent? It's probably a little bit higher. Uh, you know, I, I can I don't have a, a publicly facing number in front of me, but uh, you know, I'd say the idea of of I'll give I'll, I'll put it this way: the NFL and NBA are two of our and and you get spend this bucket too. Three of our partners um, that are rare, where they produce content every single day of their respective seasons. So uh, given the amount of content that we're showing and what I just mentioned with, with the broader ecosystem, um, you, you can get a sense there of how much we, we know that content resonates with our users because we're willing to give them you know, the ability to produce content every single day for the most part. Uh, and that's rare for us, right? Because we are a closed platform. We, we choose which publishers can produce on Discover. Um, and we also want to make sure that we're not oversaturating anybody. So the fact that we have that amount of content for those tentpole leagues um, just showcases the power of sport and how much sport resonates with Snapchatters. Okay. Your background is in private equity, isn't it? BlackRock, I saw, as your where, is where you were before. Um, private equity is a, is a, 
interesting topic in relation just if we step away from snap for a moment and just look at the 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 uh the relationship between sport and the private equity uh sort of groups um what do you think that the value of sports teams and rights holders is to that community yeah so i actually blackrock is actually asset management i think you're thinking blackstone which is private equity um, we're actually, we were across the street from each other in midtown Manhattan. So a little bit different from what I used to do, but similarly on that point, we still obviously looked at a lot of these things. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting to see the value of sports teams, right? When you look at the past couple sales of the Rockets and of the Panthers, you know, they're selling at, uh, all time highs, you know, multiple, uh, billions of dollars, um, with the pandemic over the past six months. And now some of these teams being affected. You know, as we know, gate revenue, ticket revenue, uh, concessions, merch, all the things you get from having, you know, 41 home games for for the NBA, um, uh, seven or eight home games for the NFL, uh, 81 for the MLB, which I think is probably the biggest one, right? Um, it's a significant thing to, to not have that for a period of time, right? And we look at the college sports landscape right now, um, if you're following college football in the U.S., you know, the football programs, they pay the bills for almost every other program that they have, right? Uh, if, if a university has 27 Division One sports, 26 of them don't make money uh, or operate at a loss. You know, the one that covers the costs for everyone else is football. So when you take away, you know, um, potentially take away some of these revenue generating aspects, of, as you mentioned, teams, um, leagues, ownership groups, it's a significant, significant uh, deterrent to continue to kind of grow some of these valuations and grow some of these areas of the sport. So I think in the short term, you're going to see some some challenge here. And I know like a lot of the leagues are talking about how this affects salary cap, how they can defer some of these losses over multiple years, um, as obviously the salary cap is a function of uh, the value of the league and the value of these teams and how they can continue to increase these for players um, that will be significantly affected in the short term. So I think you'll see unique uh, and creative ways for leagues to sort of spread out those losses over years and not have one potential big hit. Um, and then, you know, we'll see, I, I'm not really sure where, where we'll come out of this from um, some of these teams and ownership standpoints. Right. You know, I think one of the stories that was talked about is, Many of these owners have businesses uh, outside of the team that sort of fund their ability to to buy that team, and those businesses are are being hurt, right? If you're uh, a if you own a lot of brick and mortar stores or retail or restaurants, um, you're being significantly affected by this, and your ability to buy that by you know team X Y Z was based upon your core business, um, and if if all of that's being negatively driven. Uh, you know, we might see more owners sell their teams in the next couple of years. Um, and you might see another round of, of change of ownership around these things. So um, my, to tie back to your original question, my actually job at, at BlackRock was more around asset management and, and particularly fixed income with bigger institutions like banks and insurance companies. But uh, it's still something that, you know, I look at given my finance background, because it's just really interesting, you know, in terms of what's happening at the intersection of sports and the markets. Um, and how people think about these things. Mm. And in terms of the the way in which 
the platforms, the digital platforms are going to sort of evolve. Where do you see that going? Yeah, so I know, you know, a lot of people talk about digital platforms. We're not in this this camp of potentially bidding for some of these rights. You know, a lot of the the league rights are up for renewal, as you know, in the next number of years. Um, so I think there's been a lot of um, talk around, you know, are some of these platforms that have, have shown interest in streaming, and you've seen some of these tests with Amazon, Thursday Night Football, Twitter a couple of years ago, same thing, Facebook. Um are they going to be start bidding for some of these pieces? Um, you know, from our perspective, from Snap's perspective, we, at least today, and I think can change, you know, we, we live in this shorter form content world, as we've discussed, and we don't see someone coming to Snap to watch a three-hour game. We see them coming to Snap to talk to their best friends about the game and uh, kind of get, get the shorter form content as a way to, to keep in the know and catch up. Um, so that's kind of what we think, you know, our, our place in the space is. Um, I do think it will be interesting when you see some of these uh, renewals come up and, and if some of those bigger players will come in and try, and try and buy some of these rights. I think a lot of what Amazon's doing with this Thursday night stuff over the past few years is likely testing and seeing is this, a, um, you know, is this a, a business strategy for us long term or is this just a test and learn and see if this works? Uh, and others in the, in the same way, you know, Facebook had that MLB deal a couple of years back and they recently reduced it from, I think, like 25 games to five. Um, Twitter, same thing, had had Thursday night football rights for a couple of years. And I think that was probably similarly a test to learn. So I think you're seeing the, the social and digital platforms kind of dip their toes into the water here. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much the leagues will want to move away from their traditional cohorts of the broadcasters, but I do think you'll see more diversification, you know, uh, adding in and sprinkling a little bit of both. Again, to what we were saying earlier, um, they are, uh, they would be smart to, to find multiple avenues to reach potential fans. So I think you'll see more of that. Do you think it works having a thin slice of say, you know, the NFL's renewals are coming out over the next, you know, 18 months or so, I think to a couple of years. So you, there is a sort of run strategy is to be the home of the league and you get all of that kudos. It's enormously expensive, obviously. Do you think it, it works having a, a thin slice of a league that you can build around? Um, I think potentially for some platforms, right? I think for us, you know, when we do the, the cost benefit analysis of like, you know, and this is this is something we haven't even you know to be candid. It's not it's not something that we're even thinking about in a serious way of, of potentially owning a a number of games to stream on Snap. We just don't think that's the the user base that we have is not the base that's going to be watching that on our platform, sure. uh, primarily our mobile. So you know, from our perspective, it's it's something we don't we don't um, we're not thinking as part of our core strategy today. Again, well, as being being at Snap for for almost five years, I'll never say never on anything. But at this moment, that's not something that's part of our strategy. In terms of other platforms, I think potentially, you know, based on what their business is, right? I think for Amazon, getting people it's behind the Prime paywall, correct? So getting people to sign up for Prime is a long term burn for them, right? They'll make money off those individuals over a period of time. You know, I don't know the economics of their deal and, and how much they're, they're, they're netting out per year. But, you know, I would have to assume that they believe that all those new Prime subscribers 
over a period of time are very valuable to them because now they're in the Amazon ecosystem. So I think, you know, based on the, the platform's um, business and their, and their strategy over a period of time, it could make sense to have a slice and use that as a way to drive subs. Um, it just really depends. It depends what kind of your goals are and where and where you're going in the next three, five, ten years. Mm. Just final question on on Snap. What's the thing that um, brands? What's the data point that people want most of all? Because there was a there was a sort of time when the the the, the complaint about Snap was that you weren't sharing sort of your user data as uh, in in terms of what people are doing, how they're doing it, how they're behaving. I know that's evolved, but what, what do they want to know most of all? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it definitely was a very fair criticism or platform early on, not just from brands, I think from everyone. And I think what a lot of folks probably don't realize is that when you certainly start, you're not, you know, it, it takes a long time to build some of these tools and these functionalities and these metrics. And for us, we didn't know which metrics made the most sense, right? Um, we were just getting into the space for a lot of these things. So it just takes time. You'll see this from any new platform coming out. Um, the, it, it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, grit and learning um, to figure out what our core ad product is, what our core content format is, and what metrics make sense to succeed on Snap. I think from a brand standpoint, um, what we've done a really good job at, so not too dissimilar for what we discussed about some of my partners, the leagues and the broadcasters and rights holders and teams and athletes, a brand is also looking to diversify their reach, right? Um, when Pepsi buys an NFL spot on linear, you know, they're getting a certain audience in a certain age. They can diversify that by cutting down that spot and creating it in a unique way and putting it on Snap and getting a whole different cohort of people. So that's, I think, always going to be the the primary motivation. Um, I think what we've really added to more recently is just, uh, you know, adding more capabilities. So the data piece is huge for brands now. I think we're up to par for most of our peer platforms. Um, you know, I think one thing we've done a really good job on during the pandemic is our direct response business, right? This, this call to action where you can download an app, you can visit a website, you can buy a sneaker. Um, I think we, we've been, uh, at the forefront of some of those pieces, particularly for e-commerce. One of the things that we announced um, not to, uh, I think it was actually on our last earnings call, was this idea of a swipe up to to call action, uh, a pixel verified purchase, right? The pixel verifications we didn't have for a long time, um, app re-engagement, you know, on, the, on my side and the content side, one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten from brands for a long period of time was a way for them to easily reach different audiences on our Discover platform. So one thing that we recently launched were different content bundles um, and something we call Snap Select. So allow brands to align their messages with the verticals like mine, sports or entertainment or news. And before you couldn't do that. So right now we can kind of bundle the, the premium sports publishers, the premium entertainment publishers, the premium news publishers, and brands can buy against that bundle. Um, and then the last thing, you know, we, we launched like better advertising portals. You know, we have this portal called Snap Focus where it's an online learning tool um, where advertisers can learn about all of our different solutions. You know, as, as being a newer platform to the space, it's important they understand how our platform evolves, our ad products evolves, and now providing that tool in a much more uh, consumer-friendly way has been very positive for us on the brand side. Okay. Right. 
good place to end, I think. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it, Emmo. And uh, if people want to get hold of you, where do, where, how do they do that? Yeah, uh, you know, message me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably the best place. That's where I spend a lot of my time. So uh, happy to connect with anyone who thinks they can potentially uh, be a partner of ours one day. Thank you.